your hands off me, you rotten, rusky son of a bitch! Indiana Jones. About time you showed up. Mom! Sweetheart. Mom. Welcome to the Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast, Indiana Jones Retrospective Series. Oh boy, we're pilgrims in an unholy land. Join Garrett. He speaks a dozen languages, knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear, you'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grill already. Matt. You don't believe me. You will, Dr. Jones. Oh, a true believer. <laughs> and Adam. May we go home now, please? As they go through all the films in the Indiana Jones franchise. A solution presents itself. With the highly anticipated James Mangold-directed Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny coming out this summer. Tickets, please. One by one, the boys will look at the entire evolution of the Harrison Ford starring serial adventures. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. What do the guys expect out of this new film? It's not the years, it's the mileage. What brought powerhouses Steven Spielberg and George Lucas together? Nothing shocks me. Is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull really as bad as its reputation? Somebody's gonna get hurt! Find out the answers to these questions and many more, all coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Okie dokie, Dr. Joe's horn here, potatoes! Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, released May 24th, 1989. Budget on this was $48 million. Box office was $474.2 million. And this was once again directed by Steven Spielberg. Last Crusade. As a 12-year-old, that word last, all signs pointed to this being the final one. This was back when we thought these franchises had just a, a limited lifespan. Like I knew Star Wars was over by this time. And if Lucas said that this was the last Indiana Jones movie. I knew this was going to be the last one. So you damn bitch, yeah, I was there opening weekend. I mean, there's so much to go over when this was released, but let me first introduce my colleagues. First, are you my junior podcaster there, Matt? I'm whatever you need me to be, I guess. <laughs> yeah, this really puts uh, don't trust anyone in new context. <laughs> and my partner in crime for over... Th- 30 years at this point. Wow, cannot believe it. Mr. Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you, sir? I'm named after the dog. Named after the dog. There's so many things. I mean, this is the movie. When you quote things in these movies, this is the movie you quote. This has all the lines in it. It has more of a lighter tone to it. Before we get to all that, Adam, I mentioned that I saw this opening weekend. What about you? Did you was this a theatrical experience for you? This was a theatrical experience. Uh, absolutely for sure. Not only that, but I remember the lead-up to this movie. I mean, this was, hey, kids, come in here. We're going to watch Entertainment Tonight and mm. have John Tesh, you know, kick off this, this you know, behind-the-scenes look at Indiana Jones. Like, for those that don't remember, Indi- you know, Entertainment Tonight, back when those shows promoted actual movies and such, as opposed to just 
starlets and reality TV, but there was a huge like making of featurette that they put on. Yeah, I remember in, that. In the, in, yeah. in the weeks leading up to this, it showed the major chase that happens to kick off the the third act. Um, it had this joke of like uh, Harrison Ford staple gunning his hat to his mm-hmm. head. <laughs> that has stuck with me since I was you know a little little kid. So this one was the oh my goodness we're going to see this look what's going on here look who's in it. Yeah, the build-up in my house was a big deal to go see this. I can't remember what theater we saw it at, though I'm assuming it's your former uh, your former video store, <laughs> which prior to that was the Metro Four Cinemas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm assuming that's where we saw it because that's we would have seen them all. But yeah, I mean my my dad, my mom, everybody was excited to to go see the Last Crusade. I saw this at Stam Theater. Oh, Oh, those were the days. And you know what? And you forgot to mention, too, that I remember there was also a Diet Coke commercial associated with this, where when they're showing somebody drink Pepsi, and they have the knight go, he chose poorly. And then they show somebody drinking Diet Coke, and he's like, you have chosen wisely. Like, I mean, there was a whole campaign. Oh, my goodness, you're right. Yeah. The the cola Mm -hmm. was brought into this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there was a big promotion going into this. It was a big buildup. Goudreau, you watched this. I'm assuming in the lead up to Kingdom of Crystal Skulls. Am I correct in that? Boy, these references belong in a museum. Holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> Short answer: Yes. Could I tell you exactly when I watched this? No. As far as 1989 goes, if you asked me if, if I could go back in time and pick one to watch in the theater. I would have said Batman before Mm -hmm. this. And let's not forget, 89, we have covered quite a few of the big hitters. You know, we had a Bond movie out that year, which is ironic given that Sean Connery is in this movie. Uh, This was a big, this was sort of a big proving ground for American cinema. And it's funny that this movie actually outgrossed Batman by a couple, I think like $60 million, not a huge gap. But but yeah, after Temple of Doom, I kind of, resisted watching this one because I, I assumed it'd be indicating that the franchise was moving in a darker trajectory and they just these were just going to get incrementally more dour and batshit insane but they sold me on hey james bond is in this i'm like i guess i'll watch it wow so you weren't even curious to even watch it huh not not necessarily i mean i love i loved raiders but temple of doom was not exactly a good uh a good second step you know i felt like that movie was the equivalent of the the blades that come and behead you (laughs) that we see at the end of this movie and just almost not like this movie is literally the blind faith especially if you're someone who doesn't like temple of doom yep absolutely and that you mentioned that summer of 89 you had batman you had this you had lethal weapon 2 you had a Star Trek movie come out that year, I believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, speaking of bad Star Trek. Mm, we have, I mean, <laughs> I there were a lot of things. This was a massive, massive summer. Ghostbusters 2. Ghostbusters 2. We've, yeah. like, we've covered half the big movies <laughs> no. that, that have come out. We'll do, you know, we'll do Back to the Future Part 2 eventually. Mm-hmm. We'll do Lead Up 2. You guys have done Bill and Ted. So this was a, I mean, to call this a stacked summer is kind of an understatement. Wow, I don't know how I went to the theaters and saw all of these movies in theaters when I was 11, 12 years old. But this was it. That was all the hype leading up to this was they're going to do it one more time. And that's why we have The Last Crusade in the title. Now, to get to the making of this a little bit, they had all signed three film deals. 
But after that second film, Steven Spielberg was kind of looking to branch out a little bit. I don't, he wasn't too excited to dig back into indie. He was disenfranchised with how Temple of Doom turned out, much like Matt. And he was on his way to doing films like Always and Hook. And at this point, Spielberg had seen a script that he loved and wanted to direct. This was a script called Rain Man. And he really wanted to get into directing that film. He wanted to direct that film really bad. And another one that his sister and Spielberg helped write called Big. Those were two things that were on his plate. And then the beginning of this experience of this process was pretty much helping Spielberg make a decision to commit to Indy. Lucas had played with having Indy go on a quest for the Holy Grail in the film's prologue, not necessarily the entire film, but the prologue. But Spielberg rejected that, and it went through iterations in the scripting process as people like Chris Columbus, he came back to write a script, and Diane Thomas, they submitted scripts that were rejected for one reason or another. When Lucas brought back up the Holy Grail, Spielberg was like, I don't know if I want to do that. But then he started thinking, it's like, you know what, we can do it, but let's not make it the centerpiece. We're going to bring his dad into it. And as anyone who follows Spielberg's work knows... He loves doing these films with daddy issues. Yeah, he uses that more often than he uses John Williams to orchestrate his music. I am inclined to agree with Spielberg's reluctance to do the Holy Grail because when you say Holy Grail in movies, Muddy Python is more often than not what people are going to associate with that. So I can understand in him also being Jewish, you know, Holy Grail is that's deeply rooted in Catholicism. You know, that's kind of you know outside of what Raiders played with so i can understand his Mm -hmm. uh, hesitancy to do that combined with doing what is up with lucas wanting to do a haunted house indiana jones movie this is the second time in a row really wanted Mm -hmm. to do that dude he like all these guys man who came up in that in that time he had a darker side he wanted to kind of explore it but spielberg did not want to do it he's like dude i did poltergeist i don't know if you saw that movie but i helped with that i don't want to do another ghost story Lucas was big on that, and if you recall, Raiders of the Lost Ark wasn't necessarily a ghost story, but it had ghosts at the end of it, so I I think he wanted to further explore that, and Columbus came up with a script for it, and that was rejected. Uh, We're going to talk about another person who's worked with ghosts that, Matt, you and I have covered next week, named M. Night Shyamalan, who worked on next week's script. (laughs) So a lot of things going on around this time. So Spielberg wanted to flesh this out. He's like, okay, by this time he had committed, and he brought in a screenwriter by the name of Mino Miez. I know I butchered that name. This guy had worked on Spielberg's The Color Purple and Empire of the Sun, as well as a few episodes of his show Amazing Stories. He came in to flesh it out. Hardly any elements were carried out to the end except the idea of Indy's pursuit of his father and Nazis paying for touching the grail at the end. That was pretty much the only thing that survived this whole process. But it was only after Lucas brought in a writer by the name of Jeffrey Bohm, who had worked on the script for the Spielberg-produced Inner Space, and speaking of Lethal Weapon 2, he helped out that script as well. He submitted two drafts where he and Lucas went over each story beat, beat by beat, and Spielberg liked what he saw, and by this time he had committed to the picture. We'll get to Bohm in the future if we ever get to Lethal Weapon, but this guy had also worked on Lost Boys and Funny Farm at this point. Well, we're, doing, was... we're doing The Dead Zone, so we'll talk about that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he did work on that script as well. Jeffrey Bohm's life was tragically short. He died of heart failure in 2000 while he was in his early 50s, but he certainly left a stamp in Hollywood. Especially in the 80s. Oh, God, yeah. Adam, how do you feel about the idea of him bringing his father in? I mean, you have been kind of, I don't want to say you haven't really criticized Spielberg, but you say that he's kind of relied on this trope a little much, hasn't he? Oh, believe me, I'm one to always enjoy criticizing Spielberg. 
but yeah, I, th- I think bringing in this element is Spielberg, like kind of do a T, but in the way that it flips it. Normally, we're looking at absentee fathers, which we get in this. We're looking at the broken family, which we get in this, things like that. We've never even really discussed the mother. So going down that road does seem absolute prototypical standard. Hey, it's on the wall. You're never going to go without it. Spielberg, especially for this time frame. But I don't think it's a bad idea. The first one, we kind of had a father figure that he was chasing after. Well, mm-hmm. if you weren't if you weren't going to go the route of he was following Abner again in this one, which I know was was an idea, this is how you go about it. And if you're going to culminate your series, which was the plan, forty percent of the films ago, <laughs> when you think about it, what else do you do than bring in? Somebody that Jones was modeled after, the character was designed around. I mean, this was the idea. So we talked about how in Temple of Doom it starts off with a musical and then turns into a Bond caper. Sure, let's get James Bond, let's make him Indy's father, and let's see what we can do. And I think that was something to sell this film on as much as Indiana Jones. So playwright Tom Stoppard... He was brought in to do uncredited rewrites of the script. And if you listen to Spielberg on all the making ofs of this film, he says all the dialogue in this movie can pretty much be attributed to him. So that's pretty much what I have for the making. Matt, do you have anything to add? Not necessarily as far as the the development of this, no. All right, so that's all I have for the making. Let's dive right into the movie. We're once again seeing the Paramount logo dissolve, this time into a rock formation of some kind, as we're starting off in the faraway land of Utah in 1912. (laughs) I will just say one thing right now. I think last week's movie was more Lucas's vision. I think it's safe to assume that this is more Spielberg's vision. Definitely so. This this of the three, the original three, feels the most Spielbergian. I'm going to, and I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to completely disagree, and a couple really? reasons. I, I do, but I think every time something goes wrong for Spielberg, it's Blaine Lucas, and I'm going to be honest, I hate that shit. Just wait till next week. Oh, God, um, yeah. <laughs> but when Spielberg goes wrong, and he goes wrong a lot in his career for being, quote-unquote, the greatest director of all time. I'm sorry, this is a 30-year fight I've been having. (laughs) But he was the one who was going through just as much shit as Lucas last time. He's the one that wanted the darkness. But I think he was trying to make his poltergeist with his name on it last film. And I think that's that's why I put Temple on Spielberg's shoulders as much as anything. Because he dabbles in the horror. He dabbles in the dark so much more than Lucas. Yeah, especially if you look at what Lucas was hitching his wagon to in the 80s. Predominantly, it was the Jim Henson stuff, like Dark Crystal. Yeah, that too. He was kind of all over the place in tone. Although Battle for Endor is much more in line with stuff like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, (laughs) Temple of Doom to a certain extent. But here, I feel like this is the one with the least involvement of George Lucas because, and I'm going to say this right now, I think the the fact that this movie is so much lighter makes it play more as a comedy than Mm -hmm. a straight up action film. It's sort of the, the, the antithesis of Temple of Doom, where some of the jokes in that just feel so out of place because the rest of the movie is so in-your-face and gritty. This one, the dark stuff, feels really out of place because so much of the movie is light and fluffy. I am not a fan of a lot of the movies Spielberg's making around this time, Color Purple, uh, Empire of the Sun. Yeah, 
Matt, I thought of you a lot while I was watching this because we had mentioned when we talked about Raiders that he had never made another comedy after 1941. This could be looked at as his next comedy. <laughs> this movie, it's right pretty here. close. I mean, having seen this yeah. now for basically the second time, this is definitely, I would say, one of the latest movies he's made. I'm not going to say if that's a that's a uh, a point of damnation on it. But on, on the scale, the sliding scales, I think Raiders is the perfect blend of tone. And I, I think I said that on that show. Temple of Doom, I think, goes far too far in the left extreme. I think this one predominantly goes too far on the on the other side where it, it's – I think it's just too – silly is not the right word. But, but I think it's a little bit too much – to quote Tommy Lee Jones, there's too much buffoonery in this movie. Now, this idea of seeing Indy as a Boy Scout – this was because Spielberg and Ford were both former Boy Scouts when they were younger. So they wanted to kind of explore this idea of Indy being a child. And so the Scouts, they get off their horses as young Indy and his friend. They enter the rock formation. This movie starting off showing us Indy as a boy. At the time, in 1989, this was a very cool thing to see. This was new to me at the time. Of course, 10 years later, Lucas would do the exact same thing when he explored Darth Vader as a young boy. We'll get to that one soon, boys. But here, Indy is being played by the late, great River Phoenix. And before we talk about young Indy, I have to mention the two gentlemen on this podcast have a lot of experience with scouts and being a part of this. Adam, what do you think watching this as a father now of somebody who is really going through scouts and as somebody who whose spouse is really involved in it? When I was young, I thought it was cool just because, but I didn't have any connection to it as a, as a kid. As an adult now, I think it's neat. I think it gives a level to Indiana Jones. I think it fits with the history of of scout and the mission of, of scouting and stuff. I think it explains a lot of his curiosity and history and things like that. And it's also kind of cool to bring my kids into the room and my wife into the room and be like, look, Indiana Jones was a scout too. And then for them all to pick apart his outfit and how he's out of compliance with dress. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's cool. It's fun. And it's a nice, easy shorthand to add an extra level to the character without being overt as some of this stuff normally is. Now, Matt, you have also worked deeply in the scouts. You, you've made a career out of it. What, do you, what are you thinking when you're seeing Indy as an adult, as an uh, adult, as you're watching Indy do this? It, it's funny because Spielberg is also an Eagle Scout, much like I am. That's basically the only thing we have in common outside of like a movie. <laughs> um, so, so Adam's kids are right. These uniforms would not pass inspection nowadays, but that's because these were basically this – 1910 is when the BSA was founded in America. So this is like 1912, 1913, so it's still in the first wave. As far as accuracy, you know, it's pretty cool. Nowadays, campaign hats are not part of Class A whatsoever. In fact, basically this attire you would not see in a modern scout uniform. little detail for those of you who don't know. I think this is cool. It's, it's a good way to explain his background. What I appreciate about these three movies, and the fourth one as well, is that they all start out drastically different from one another. There is a formula to these movies but it's not an outright rinse and repeat every single time. They find new ways to tweak it so that each one of these movies feels distinct from one another while still being part of the same franchise. All right, let's talk about River Phoenix. Now, this was the choice of star Harrison Ford as he has worked with as he had worked with Phoenix on his film The Mosquito Coast and thought he looked like a perfect younger version of him. And I'd agree. Phoenix is very good as Indy in this first 20 minutes or so. The thing they did right was make this beginning tie into what Indy is doing now and not revolve an entire movie around it. This small portion makes me want more of it. And we'll talk about what Lucas does with this young Indy concept at the end of this podcast. But here, I like it and find Phoenix one of our most tragic, 
what if acting stories such a delight as the character I already love? Um, because those that have heard me go off on other type of um, actors and stuff in Hollywood, his his demise doesn't hold any special significance to me. But I also I wasn't big into River Phoenix. The movies that he was in around that time weren't ones that I watched because he OD'd at a young age. Just doesn't. I, I don't have an emotional attachment to that. I I couldn't care about celebrities deciding to OD. It's just whatever. Um, I think his brother is an amazing talent, but I do think he's good enough in this opening. He gets the job done. I like that he doesn't talk a whole lot, so he doesn't have to do a Harrison Ford impression outright. I think he's in the movie just enough. I thought if, I think if this dragged on any longer or if they intercut this with more flashbacks, it would have hurt from the actual finished product. So I, I think this opening, it, it gives you just enough, but sometimes I think it gives you too much. They would take the concept of this opening and make it a two-hour feature later. It's called Solo. <laughs> Where they decide they're going to give you every single reason that everything has ever happened to this person inside a movie. <laughs> and that's what I thought of when I was watching this. Like, I've, it, it's fun because it's, as a kid, you're the avatar, finally. There's, you is Indiana Jones, and it's, I think it's why so many kids loved the young Indiana Jones series. But we get everything in here just like we do in Solo. We get, we get the hat, the whip, the scar, the jacket, the look. We get everything that is Indiana Jones here in this prologue. However, as opposed to, and I know I'm trashing something that I'm going to trash a lot later on in a few months, it does fit here because of how this opening is done. It's a very kinetic sequence. I think doing it on the train gives it, not to put too, uh, too much of a, of a stamp on it, but it, it propels it along really, really well. We're going to table the River Phoenix talk for at least next year because we'll get to Stand By Me. And he's oh, a big part that? of it. Yeah, yeah, he's a big part of it. Yeah. So they're watching some digging going on as somebody who was wearing Indy's familiar outfit is holding the cross of Coronado and how it's terrible that these guys are holding it because, as Indy says, it belongs in a museum. It, this is a swerve, though. Is it, you know, the first time you're watching this, the way that this is shot is similar to the first one where. You might think that these kids, these scouts, are coming upon Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah. You know, but then when you turn, you're like, wait, that's not the Indy I know. And it's because that's not an Indy. And this is when we finally start to realize, oh, okay, now I get it. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, this is interesting because it is setting up what Indy's mindset is. And I like how this rivalry with this guy sets up the fact that nine times out of ten, Indy will put the museum before nabbing his, say, fortune and glory. We even see him handling a snake as he starts getting chased. He misses jumping on a horse the first time, but he eventually does, and he ends up hopping on a train. And I find this entire portion of the film to be very entertaining. I like the shot of them chasing him across the train. And yes, I liked seeing how he got his fear of snakes. We even see how he got his whip and the scar on his chin, which was actually an injury Harrison Ford had when he was 20 years old. It was never a part of the character, but since it's on Harrison Ford, let's see how he got that scar. And uh, this involves him trying to tame a lion with his whip, which he ends up with as well. We've kind of gotten adam's take on this portion matt how are you feeling seeing all this stuff going on on this train so i have two big issues number one everything that adam said about explaining all the little details i always hate that doesn't matter the property i think the only time they've done it well is casino royale uh, to me that that begins our prequels done like reboots done well the second thing is though it makes temple of doom retroactively worse as a prequel because he's all about fortune and glory in that movie 
But here as a 13-year-old boy, he's about, it belongs in a museum. So that's not consistent at all. And I don't like the fear of snakes thing. Not everything, uh, we'll talk about this at the, you know, Solo is the perfect example. Not everything needs a fucking explanation. <laughs> Especially because these movies are not, pre, should not really be preoccupied with character development or really adding layers because they're not, a, first two aren't about that really. They're about being those, those serials in a longer format. My big issue with this, it's none of, I actually like seeing how this stuff came about. Especially at that time. At the time I'm watching this saying, oh wow, we're like, I'm actually seeing this instead of having all the member berries as we get into the Marvel stuff and things like that. The thing I didn't like about this was, you're telling me everything that shapes Indy happens in this, what, 20, 30 minute span? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I had no real big issues with this. Looking at it now, so much older, it's easy to criticize. But do you know why I criticize it? It's because Solo does this so Poorly. They're both Harrison Ford characters. That's the amazing part to me. But when I'm watching this, is it everything? Yes. Is it ridiculous that it's the iconography of Indiana Jones happens in this one little opening prologue? Sure. Is it fun and adventurous? And does it kind of fit in the serial format? Yeah, it sure does. It's fun. I go with it. And at the time as a kid I'm watching this, it's one of those, ooh, that's how that happened. Ooh, that's how that yeah. happened. Ooh, that's how that happened. Now, as a jaded, you know, 40-year-old man, it's a little different. But when I'm the age of Indiana Jones in this opening, it's just really cool. As a kid who has a scar on his chin that's a permanent scar, I've always had that uh, that little connection. So I absolutely love any time <laughs> that scar is featured because I have one in the exact same spot. Wow, Matt. Adam's comparing himself to Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> I think all this stuff looks pretty good. My uh, the, the stuff that doesn't though, like I, I think the rhinoceros horn was ridiculous. And when they're shooting Phoenix and the blue screen is behind him, it's extremely evident when he's on this train. Other than that though, I, I found this to be pretty fun. Indy finds his way into a magic car, and even the guy chasing him gives him a smile like, "You got one on me," <laughs> as he goes in. And Indy then makes his way home past indiana the dog as his dad makes him count in greek yes <laughs> sorry to me that that was lucas's uh -huh. version right there was hey, the, dog, the, dog. the dog the dog the dog yeah you might as well as been like introduce him to chewbacca the dog it is hilarious to me but if you don't know that stuff it washes over you i do find it charming Indy gives the cross to the sheriff, and Indy learns real quick that you just can't trust a soul when it comes to money. The guy gives him his hat, and we cut to adult Indy getting punched on this obvious soundstage, which is trying to pass itself off as a boat. Great Indy's, cut. It's a great, great cut. Great I think transition, this, great cut. Yeah, I do. I just think this, this set looks bad. And even as a kid, like I watched this, I'm like, they're not really on a boat. It just, it just looked bad. So Indy swings on a hook right into the water as the boat completely sinks. I like the cut, like Adam mentioned. You know, I like the way the hat's down, and then Indy rises up, and he, we're seeing Harrison Ford, and then he just gets punched in the face. That's all great. I'm just saying where they are, and this this ridiculous ship sinking just looks really stupid. Yeah, that's a lot. He just straight up murders everyone on that boat. <laughs> he really does. And the one thing I was struck by, and it may be just watching these in close succession, this person who takes... Who's after the cross of Coronado the entire time? And I can't remember this guy's name. But he's wearing the outfit that Indy would wear in yeah. the beginning of Temple of Doom. You know, mm -hmm. he's wearing the white tuxedo with the red rose. And I'm just like, man, even that gets taken directly, you know, and repurposed. 
we cut to the school as Professor Indy is back. Adam, you're happy now, right? We get yes, Professor I Indy. Yes, I am. As he's, Indy that, my Indy. as he's saying that X never, ever marks the spot. Really, Indy? We'll get back to this in, a, in about 30 minutes or so. Marcus shows back up as Indy gives him the cross that he came back with. He's chased by students, as well as who we will eventually come to know as the villain of this story, Walter Donovan, played by Julian Glover, who you guys may remember as General Veers on Empire Strikes Back. That's where Lucas had him, and he remembered him and brought him in for this. All right, here's my issue with this villain. Belloc was a smart yet smarmy villain. Mularam was imposing to look at. This guy is bland as all bland can be, and it's obvious that they didn't want to go big with this villain. Glover's not even that engaging. He's just there. Well, I also think they cast him because he was a Bond villain. And it's literally yeah. the yep. same exact plot twist where you find out he's the villain later on in the movie. He's fine. I just don't think I don't think he's all that interesting. The the fact that they go back to the Nazis again and he's got another henchman who's overly sadistic who works for the Nazis. Uh so much of this feels like diet raiders with the stuff that they rinse and repeat from that movie. Matt just took a big part of my notes right there is, yeah, going back to the Nazis and having having this guy here, be Donovan, be a collaborator with the Nazis, but done in a different way where Belloc, you felt, was an intellectual equal or even superior that, that was using the Nazis for his own benefit. Here with Donovan, I think Spielberg is getting into that, something that we talk about, he's done a lot, but just the working... the Nazi collaboration and who he's going to be to the Nazis. And I think it gets more mixed up later when we introduce somebody else. It's definitely the weakest villain that we get up till this point. He's just, he's bland. He's not engaging. You really don't care about Donovan. And I think that he is just so close in stature and look and everything else to Marcus that you need Mm, something to differentiate these two when they're all together. Yeah, when I was a kid, I used to mix them up. Well, <laughs> for, for the record, I swear to God, Brody has a twin brother that gets switched in this movie. Because because <laughs> there comes right? a point as to, when the movie cuts, and he becomes a bumbling idiot that is insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to me the similarities in the discussion we're having here and Return of the Jedi that we did just a couple months ago. Because in that discussion, we mentioned that, you know, Lucas went back to something he knew. He went back to the Death Star. And here, we're going back to Nazis. And, you know, I, I like the line Indy has later, you know, Nazis, I hate these guys. Adam, would you agree? Like, this is just something he's familiar with, right? Yeah, it worked before. And it's also, I mean, you put a swastika on screen, and that is just, it's short. You don't have to work at making them a villain. You mm-hmm. don't need to do any other work other than show a swastika, that uniform, a goose step, and a zig heil. They are just evil personified, so it is the shortest shorthand you could possibly get. Yeah, I kind of wish they did something different with the villains, but you're also pigeonholed with the time period that this movie's set in. You know, Mm -hmm. still in the era of, you know, the Third Reich, and you couldn't quite do the Japanese yet. I guess you could have done the Italians and Mussolini. They go to Venice in this movie. That would have been a really interesting take, go Axis Powers and see yeah. some of that, especially when you're talking collaboration and such. Ooh. Are, are they doing Nazis in the new one? Anybody know? Yes. Yes. They are. They're back, huh? Wow. Yes. Even though it's the fucking 60s. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. That'll be interesting. 
So Donovan shows Indy half an inscription, and here's our quote-unquote pointy scene that Lucas likes to talk about. Donovan tells Indy of the entire story involving the Holy Grail and ends it with the kicker that his dad can't be chosen for this mission because he's the one who disappeared. What do you guys think of this version of the pointy scene? It's funny because it is really engaging. You know, the Holy Grail is just that. I mean, it's it's still the Holy Grail of of artifacts in movies, you know, when you think about it. The problem is it is such it's such a similarity to the pointy scene, as we call it, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that if you compare them, it's like, man, this really can't live up to that one. There was something about that book and the top men that were in there with him and everything else that just made that feel kind of magical. The wind blew when they discussed it. There was something about that. That's missing from this one. It's not bad, you know, and, you know, the the marker and all that is, is kind of cool, but it is no Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think this movie struggles in this scene and in general with balancing the archaeological nature of this object with the theological, you know, the religion-based. I think Raiders walks that tightrope perfectly. This one, not so much. And this is the figurative pointy scene because there is literally a pointing scene we get later on that is the <laughs> best Harrison Ford finger wag of doom that he's given in his career. And he's done a lot of them, so much so it's a punchline. That was one of the hesitancies that Spielberg had in going to the Grail is he was talking to Lucas about this. He's like, so what happens? Like they go and they find this cup on a fucking shelf. What do we do with that? I mean, they kind of you know, do technically. Yes. They kind of do technically, <laughs> but they give it different powers. And what I'm, what I'm saying is that they're trying to make this mystique around it kind of similar to the Ark where it's going to do bad things. And we're going to, you know, we're going to get that kind of same buildup as to when we actually get to the Grail itself. So Indy goes home and finds his dad's diary and asks Marcus, what if the Grail actually exists? They get on a plane as Donovan warns Indy not to trust anyone. Hmm. And we get the trail. Indy is flying again on the screen. As we mentioned, I always like when I see that. I think that's a very cool part of the series. It is, but it's amazing that even this just feels a little lesser. I don't know. It's like even this one, I'm like, ooh, map scene. And I'm like, why doesn't the map scene feel as cool? Like, it's just... I don't know, maybe it's because... It's, it's a red line going across the screen. What do you want it to do? It doesn't... It still doesn't <laughs> come across as cool as it did before. But yes, I absolutely love the map scene because it's the easiest shorthand to take us from A to B without the current Disney way of just throwing up a giant freaking city's name on a screen and fucking 68 Havelica font. If this was today, you would just say, Venice. A red line going across the screen isn't as cool this time. Jesus Christ. Adam wanted the wipes. <laughs> I do. I do miss the wipes. Oh, we'll get that in a couple months. They get off the plane and are greeted by Dr. Schneider, who's not a guy they were expecting, but a beautiful blonde, played by an actress by the name of Allison Duty. Now hey, this career this, went nowhere. Her career went absolutely nowhere after this. She was a Bond girl. We talked about her when we did, what was it, For Your Eyes Only, if I remember correctly. And then she did this, and she's kind of gone off the beaten path after this. I thought she was gorgeous. She's a wonderful-looking girl. But I don't know. It's like definitely missing that Karen Allen-type uh, edge. Yeah, she is no Karen Allen. However, I will say, thank goodness she replaced Kate Capshaw. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, and in the way of, of you know, beautiful blondes that Spielberg cast in his movies that he decided to marry. Spielberg chose poorly. Um, <laughs> but she fits the role 
but she, she's a Bond villain. She's the Bond girl in this one. I mean, in the entire, you might as well have plucked her out of a Bond movie to stick her in here because her motivation, the flip, everything in here, just, you might as well, Indiana Jones and the search for 007 because, man, she is a Bond villain. She's a Bond girl. Yeah, we've already got a Bond villain. We got a Bond girl from View to a Kill, which, by the way, that's not the movie you should be taking from Spielberg. <laughs> she is very, yeah, she is the, the prototype for what they were doing with Bond girls, particularly the Brosnan era with Xenia and Miranda Frost, where they're more so Miranda Frost, where you think she's good, and then there's the, the switch. That part's relatively convincing, but I just don't think Allison Duty can play menacing well. No. I buy her as an educated, you know, intellectual. But when she has to play bad, Goldberg in WCW was more convincing <laughs> being a villain uh, than, than she was. Ask I, Bret Hart. He was a villain. I think <laughs> bitch. With these movies, all three of these movies treat their women very differently. Marion is the one who has a history with Indiana Jones and can match him for step for step. Willie is the helpless bimbo. And here we have the, you know, the archetypical femme fatale. And then, you know, in the fourth one, we're going to get the, the main villain is a woman. Um, so I like that they they keep finding new ways to do the women, uh, although that line should be reserved for Sean Connery in this movie. Uh, <laughs> I do wish they cast they cast a different actress. I, I will say that. I wish they had just picked a decision on how they were going to go with her. Because, I mean, once she goes evil, we'll get to it later on. But after the switch, then they try to make it where she's not all that bad. They try to justify everything about her instead of just letting her be a villain. And that drives me freaking nuts. Spielberg had a vision for her that I think we're going to see next week, where he wanted her to have black hair and be more villainous than what she turns out to be. Pretty much. Well, I was. I thought that was interesting when I saw that. That that he actually wanted her to have dark hair. But you know, no, they Capshaw wanted her to have dark hair. <laughs> <laughs> she, who's on set? Yeah, no, she can't be a blonde. <laughs> but they ended up with the blonde look, and I think that that is exactly what they were going for. There's a lot of you guys have already made a lot of Bond connections here, and I think that's another one. We're just going for the femme fatale here, not necessarily the villainous female. She needs to look like a perfect Aryan race, and she does that way. And for the record, this is still a better Bond girl than any of the girls in the Dalton films <laughs> that we got around this time. And she's a better Bond girl than uh, Stacy in View to a Kill. So at least Spielberg is crossing that threshold. <laughs> Indy mentions that Dad wasn't giddy even when he was a schoolboy. And they go inside the library, and Indy recognizes the window inside. He matches the Roman numerals, and Indy sees that his dad wasn't looking for a book on the knight's tomb. He was looking for the tomb itself. They match the numerals, and unlike his class earlier, X indeed marks the spot here. They start smashing and heading down as the librarian believes it's his stamp making the noise that breaks the floor. Einstein <laughs> works in a library? <laughs> I thought this was funny though. When I when in theaters, I laugh my ass off at this scene. As an adult, I watched it. I'm like, ah, that's cute. It's cute. It's funny. Matt, as Matt said before, like this film is it's incredulous in its way that it's shoehorning in comedy into it. It is as much of a comedy piece as it is action, and I don't mind that. But it's you know very very on the nose type comedy. But I am laughing. You know, one with the X marks the spot being a giant X. Yeah. But yeah, when he goes and he puts down that, okay, folks, in a library, they used to stamp the books and you used to have to sign them in and out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. <laughs> Kids. Um, so 
So him stamping this book and just that giant slam, it made me laugh, you know, when I was 12, and it makes me laugh when I'm 44. I get the feeling that Goudreau is looking like Henry Jones does the majority of this film. Like, he's just got that scowl on his face, like, <laughs> just <laughs> work a little scene. harder. Uh, it's sort of a scene-by-scene basis. Okay. Uh, this This is fine, but I think there are too many points where this movie goes... I mean, th- this movie might as well be a Roger Moore, James Bond film with, with its tone, the actors they picked. But instead of casting Roger Moore as Henry Jones, they cast Sean Connery. So Elsa gets lowered down and they start looking at symbols and a great little bit here where Indy recognizes the markings that point to the Ark of the Covenant. And when Elsa yeah. asks, are you sure? Indy looks and Williams plays the Ark theme and <laughs> we hear Indy go, pretty sure. That fucking made me laugh. Loved it. I I remember it from the TV spots when they were showing trailers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I had forgotten it until I rewatched it, and then I was like, oh, that's such a... Like, that's a great little nod. I agree. These scenes, though, in the fucking dungeon, when I see Alice of Duty, all I see is fucking Terry Gar from Young Frankenstein. Oh, God. Look, at the passage bay. Like, she's German, too. <laughs> or Austrian, whatever the fuck she is. Yeah, she's uh, awesome. Which is also a uh, problem. Her accent goes in and out throughout this movie. It does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They go further down into petroleum, and Indy grunts. Oh, rats. Rats infest all around them, much like the bugs last week, much like the snakes a couple weeks ago. The rats are the gross-out animal this week. I think that's a good idea, but there are times when they have the full shot of this underground dungeon. It, they, You could tell how many are fake and how many are real. <laughs> Yeah, there's parts where you might as well see strings. They go deeper inside, and they find the tomb, along with some deep carvings. Elsa says it's this one, so this time she chooses wisely as the lid is opened. And Elsa says that he's just that Indy's just like his father. Wouldn't it be great if he was here? To which Indy says he would never have made it past the rats. He's scared to death of them. So Indy's afraid of snakes, and his dad's afraid of rats. That is such an unnecessary, like, father-son, how would they both think? But it's amazing that I don't brush up against that because I feel like it should, mm-hmm. it should bug the hell out of me that they each have this animal that they're scared of. But I just look right past it. We get some guys who are lighting the tomb on fire as rats get inside Elsa's hair and they exit from a grate located at a nice restaurant in Venice, another pit I really laughed at. <laughs> they just kind taken of... from, directly from Mission Impossible. They get on a boat, and we have a boat chase. Indy fights a thug who gets on the boat as he yells at Elsa to not go between the two big freighters ahead. She takes it as saying, go between the two freighters ahead, as the boat barely squeezes through. We then get another obvious set as Indy takes a guy and interrogates him as a propeller gets closer. The guy responds, my soul is prepared. How's yours? Kazem then says that he is just protecting the secret of the grail and says, ask yourself, why are you seeking the cup of Christ? Is it for his glory or yours? I thought this was a pretty good scene. I think this boat chase is really fun. But again, the sets are so obvious. When Spielberg has that overhead shot, as somebody who has worked on these fucking studios, it's so obvious that you just cannot look, you cannot just think you're in it like you were with the Ark of the Covenant and Raiders. I disagree. I just, I like the way that it looks. Um, I'm not pulled out by it. It, so is it a yeah I can't even say that I feel like it's a set I'm okay with I just I like the way that it looks and maybe because it's different it's bright it's daytime on a on a boat in Venice I, I like it I like it quite a bit I think the action scenes in the whole for this movie are kind of unmemorable like they're they're good eye candy where I enjoy them in the moment but they don't stick with me as I distance myself from the movie 
Marcus and Indy, they put together what the markings on the tomb meant as they find a map that his dad made that led to the cavern of where the grail is. Go, the most simplistic ahead. nothing map that I have ever seen. It is a line that's just like drawn between a mountain. There is nothing to that map. <laughs> we then get what I would call a very uncomfortable love scene between Indy and Elsa that takes place in a room that was uh, coasted by troops. Though I love the old style record player playing in the background. I think that's rather cool. But when he says that he doesn't like fast women and she responds with, I hate arrogant men. And then they start kissing. It was just weird. That's kind of, there's parts in this movie where they make Indiana Jones feel too much like James Bond. Uh, this is that instance where he just beds any, the first woman in sight. Because uh, he never really did that with Willie. Uh, no. He openly rejected her advances. And I don't think he would have done it even if he wasn't getting choked out in his own room. Here, it's just, all right, she's the one woman in this movie and she gets around. It's amazing how much this love scene plays like a Bond love scene. You know, so, mm-hmm. and a Roger Moore one. Like, this is... Yeah. They head inside the place where his dad is held, and he makes a disguise as a Scottish art collector who was there to collect. Okay, pause, 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 right. pause. Because I tried to rack my brains about this, because they go, how do they know where Henry Jones is being held? I racked my brain trying to figure out how we got from looking for this in Venice, we know what we're looking forward to, okay, let's go to where they're holding my father. And I feel like we just skipped, like, a big reveal of how they find out where Senior is at. Anybody know? I could have sworn I heard them say either Elsa or maybe even Donovan told him where he was actually being held. Kazim says it. That's right. Kazim says it. Yeah. Does he? Okay. Yes. Um, And you always out of Elsa could have told him because she was in on it. Mm, That's true. I just feel like we just traveled to another country to get him without a clear reveal that, you know, what we were doing. That's well, how do they how do they know this cover's going to work, too? Yeah, not exactly. It, not that it does, because he fails miserably. Like Mel Gibson has a more convincing Scottish accent in Braveheart, and that's not very good either. <laughs> well, what was <laughs> weird about this, you know what I, you know what I thought? <laughs> oh, Jesus. You know what I thought of when he came in here like this? I thought of Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China. When he comes in, he's just like, it yeah. sure is raining <laughs> cats and dogs. <laughs> oh, good point. Oh, damn, that would have been, he'd be, make a great Indiana Jones back. He would have. But I don't know. Seeing Harrison Ford go this route, it's just, it's, I think this goes to where, what Matt was saying in the beginning. It's, it goes into silly territory. Harrison Ford's never been great with just being an outright, like being outrightly funny. His humor is more sardonic and sarcastic. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here when he's putting on a facade, it just doesn't feel like something he would do. So Indy knocks out a guard who figures out his, his disguise and notices that he is being surrounded by Nazis. So we're going back to the Nazis as villains this time. Hate these guys. But I will um, say that this one scene did one thing. It still gives me the way that I say tapestries. Yes. <laughs> I, I do the, the same thing. It still goes to me asking to see the tapestries. <laughs> Indy swings from one tower to the other and is bonked in the head by his father, the 12 years older than him, Sean Connery. Only 12 years. 12 years older. Yep. All right. We've been swimming around it this entire podcast. How do we like Sean Connery here? Uh, We haven't really reviewed him since Bond. How do we feel about him here? Matt, the big Bond fan, what are you feeling here? He's a lot of fun. I think he's he's very effective. Like I think his timing is very... Is very good. I'm starting to think he drank from the wrong cup because you you look at him after Diamonds Are Forever 
when he stopped officially being Bond and his aging just accelerated. I mean, you look at this versus Never Say Never Again, which was six years before, and it's like the angel of death tapped him on the shoulder. But from here on, he would look the same until his passing. So basically, they're like 12 years apart because they actually, I buy them as father and son, even while knowing that fact. I think their banter back and forth is pretty good. Yeah, th- this works for me well beyond what I thought it would. Even though this, for the record, this is stunt casting. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, when they were talking about doing the Holy Grail here, Spielberg didn't want to focus on the Holy Grail. He wanted to have an out for this, and that's when he came up with the idea of having Indy's father. And there was never, ever any other casting in choice other than Sean Connery. That's who Spielberg was intent on. This was all his idea. They were able to get him. They were afraid that he'd come on set and be the curmudgeon that he had the reputation of being. Apparently, he was very fun on this set. Him and Ford had a wonderful rapport, and everybody had a fun time making this you know we said on the previous two nobody had a real fun time in tanisha on the first one nobody had a fun time making temple of doom so this was actually a fun set for the most part and connery brought a different feel for this movie i think he he's wonderful as his dad here i also don't think about the fact that they're 12 years apart yes it is very obviously stunt casting because what better to have be the father of indiana jones and the guy who he was based on james bond and i think it works in that way as well i think this is really good and I'm not even a, I said on those Bond podcasts I'm not a huge Sean Connery fan I really like him in this okay here we go it, yeah this is pitch perfect casting if you're gonna oh jeez <laughs> um, is it stunt casting 100% does it work 100% like these two riff off each other in such a fun way if it wasn't for the fact that Sean Connery refuses to do anything but that thick Scottish accent, which makes no sense how these two are father and son and talk nothing alike. <laughs> like, I don't know how Henry Jones is Scottish, but you go with it. I, I don't care. He's Henry Jones Sr., and they work so well together. It's fantastic. It's like they age him up a little bit, but, yeah, I mean, he looks 10 years older here than he does in Medicine Man, which comes out, like, four years later. But... It's perfect. They did everything but put him in the white tuxedo with red rose. You know, it would have been fun, you know. But, yeah, it's it's great casting. I think our parents, who would have been excited to see this anyway and know the takeoff from James Bond, would have been excited to see Connery in it. It's a pitch-perfect way to tie this franchise to that one. It's winking at the audience, but it's doing it with a self-referential knowledge. So, yeah, I'm totally down with Sean Connery here. I can't think of who else you would even think of to do this role. Yeah, Dad was there. Dad was really into this casting. Like when he found out that Sean Connery was in this, I mean that, that's Might it. as well. Might yeah. Too. And, you know, as far as the accent goes, you can kind of make an argument and make a case for the fact that he's so world weary that he's just kind of talking like where he's been. That's the kind of the uh, retcon I made when it came to the accent. But you're right. I mean, Connery could have done something different, but he, this is how we know him. So. Henry Jones calls Indy Jr., which Indy hates, and he notices that the markings on the vase that he hit him with are fake. And so what I love about this is Henry's just like, oh, my God. He goes, he was just like, thank goodness. And Indy's like, I'm fine. It's okay. He's like, no, no, no. These markings are fake. This is not a real vase. All of this stuff really plays well. And you don't see Connery do comedy that much. You didn't see Ford do comedy that much. And I think the rapport, again, is very fun here. It is. There's times where the comedy gets a little broad because Henry is so aloof to everything. You know, I don't think he takes anything serious until very, very few points. But it's 
easy shorthand to also show how knowledgeable he is and the things that he's seen through the years and those kind of things. And it's, again, this is also a little middle finger to how many of these relics and these Nazi sympathizers were just fake bullshit. You know, like Mm -hmm. Spielberg is going to get his little jabs in, and I like that when you take that on the surface. So, and he says that he used his dad's diary to find him and even tells him about the rats. And the Nazis come in, they address Dr. Jones, to which they both respond, yes. <laughs> they ask for the diary, and though his dad is saying that <laughs> you don't think Indy would be dumb enough to bring the book with him, and <laughs> as they argue, they take out the troops, and Indy yells, I told you, don't call me Junior. As they try escaping, he sees that the Nazis have Elsa. His dad says, go ahead and shoot her, but Indy falls for the banana in the tailpipe, as they say, and puts his gun down, and... Of course, Elsa is revealed as the Nazi. It's not the reveal itself. It's the way she tries to tweak her performance because it's not convincing. Uh, And the Donovan reveal in this scene is also not a surprise. Might as well have had him take off a hood and go, It's me, Austin! (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's any surprise. So it is what it is. But as Matt says, her performance never gets to a point where... It should be for this kind of character, and that's where it's disappointing. She's eye candy for the director. Ooh, there's a shot of Spielberg if I ever heard one. Indy's dad tells him that he knew that Elsa was a Nazi because she talks in her sleep. An uncomfortable (laughs) plot line if I ever heard one. They both slept with the same woman, which, of course, was Sean Connery's idea. I absolutely... The way that Sean Connery, like, smiles. (laughs) Yeah. Like, it's... And as a kid, I had no idea why my dad was laughing so hard. Yeah, same here. (laughs) Exact same thing. (laughs) Growing up, it's just like, oh, my God, what a slut. And now I'm older, (laughs) I'm just laughing. You know, it's it's funny. Well, give her this. She's not an ageist. (laughs) I mean, they're only a decade apart. (laughs) I was just about ready to say, they're only 12 years apart. (laughs) Walter is then revealed as also helping the Nazis, and they discover pages that were taken out of the book as they have been given to Marcus. And he says that Marcus will blend in, and with any luck, he has the grail already. This, of course, is a lie, as Marcus is having trouble finding someone who speaks English, though he finds Salah. Great seeing him back. But, Matt, this is the twin Marcus that you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, and then making Brody just an outright idiot is one of the huge missteps I have with this movie, because there's nothing in Raiders that will lead you to believe he's this incompetent. Because, uh, you, you know, you would think a professor or a dean at both the museum and the university would understand the travel and stuff because, uh, like, like, this almost feels like a retcon. And this is the worst example of Spielberg's 1941 level of broad comedy peaking its way into this movie. Though, to be fair, we never did see Marcus out in the quote-unquote field. So he could have been this way the entire time. He was just the other way at the university. Two things. One, I like the way that the camera slowly gets in on Indiana Jones as he's selling Marcus as this, you know, master Mm -hmm. of everything. Just a smash cut to the comedy. Like, I like the way that's done. But to Matt's point, yeah, this is not the same Marcus that we got two films ago. And to your point, this isn't a guy that would run you know, a prestigious university and museum and be doing all this stuff. So they made him they made him a bumbling sidekick and that's just a shame. 
you know, compared to who we had before. If you look at that character from the first one and look at it now, it is not the same character whatsoever. Who is the same character as Sala, who we have back here? It was really nice seeing him back. He was really missed last week. Matt, is this more of going back to what you know works? Yeah, th- th- this is one of the beats and the fact that they reused Nazis. This kind of feels like a soft reboot before that was a thing. I like his presence, but at the same time, this movie could function without him entirely. Like This, this character doesn't have to be Sala. It's just they could get John Reese davies back. Yeah, the thing is that, yeah, I like Sala and I like John Reese davies So as much as, yeah, Matt is completely correct, I just like seeing him here. And I like it more and more because every time I go to Disneyland, he's the one that introduces the, the <laughs> indie ride that I'm about to get on and spells out that story. So I like the character of Sala and happy to see him included. Sala punches a few Nazis and they run away. He puts Marcus in what he thinks is another house, but it's actually the back of a truck, and the truck drives away. So now the Nazis have Marcus. We redid the exact yes. same shtick yeah. from Raiders. <laughs> and I didn't care then because it was fun at the end of a scene. This makes no sense why this truck is just chilling, hoping that he runs into it. <laughs> I know. I thought of you because you made such a big deal of pointing that out when we did Raiders. And when this scene came up, I'm like, oh, God, I know Adam's going to mention that. <laughs> fun to stupid. <laughs> Meanwhile, the two Jones boys, they're tied up in a chair, and as Elsa tells Indy of how wonderful their time together was, his dad's like, thank you. It was pretty wonderful. She kisses Indy, saying that's how they say goodbye in Austria, to which the Nazi says goodbye by punching him, and Indy says he likes the Austrian way a little better. They find Indy's lighter and try burning through the ropes, but his dad drops the lighter and the floor catches fire. They move their chair through the castle as the Nazis declare war on the Jones boys. They go to the fireplace, and as Indy tries getting the ropes off, they just revolve to the other side. They give a little smile, which doesn't fool a woman working the room, and she screams. But Indy is able to get the ropes loose, and we cut to more comedy involving this revolving fireplace before they escape. Why does this castle have a Scooby-Doo gag? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly what it is. Oh, shit. <laughs> I found it fun, though. I'm I'm still having a good time. Yeah, no, I mean, everything here when they're tied up, it is slapsticky comedy, but I'm going with it. Trying to blow out the flames, just the... Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's stupid, and I don't... Because I'm enjoying, I think, who's playing the roles, I'm going along for the ride, and I'm I'm enjoying myself in spite of... The seriousness of Raiders isn't here for this one. The darkness of Temple isn't present. So it's a third type of, of it's a third genre of film in this adventure series. And I don't mind because I think that the these two are holding this film up squarely on their shoulders. And that two shot of them in the chair and Indy going, Dad, and Sean Connery going, what, Dad, what? I mean, that was in all the trailers, all yeah. the commercials leading up to this. But, yeah, Matt is right. It is totally just Scooby-Doo'd out at this point. <laughs> <laughs> they run into a dead end, and as Indy's father sits down, a solution presents itself, as he says. Indy finds a boat, to which he says, great, more boats. But it's not the boat they jump on, it's a motorcycle. I like this fake out, and I forgot this existed when I watched mm-hmm. it this time. I was like, wait, we're doing another boat? Uh, nope, we're not. Got me too. <laughs> Indy looks back for approval from his dad, and I find that to be a funny but poignant theme throughout this entire movie. All Indy wants is approval from his father, as most guys, when they become adults, do. 
He's not getting it here. And, you know, it's play for laughs here, but later it means a lot. It does, and that that shift is kind of tonal whiplash, in my estimation. That, that That's where Spielberg puts too much of himself in this movie that really, these movies really aren't meant to be deep, in my estimation. I was the one who was looking at it from a cynical point of view, like, you know what? It's not that funny to me. I'm not really enjoying the ride. I'm not getting the father-son stuff. But as I get older, you know, and I, there's more distance between when my father was alive than when he isn't, it's starting to become more poignant to me. And maybe that's just me getting older. But I'm, I'm finding myself more engaged by this than I was when I was in my teens and 20s. Now, this motorcycle chase, it was filmed after filming had ended, believe it or not, because Spielberg felt the movie suffered from a lack of action. After press screenings, Spielberg was like, it's a little too talky in the middle. We need to spice this up a little bit. So they filmed this pretty much right there in Marin County, right behind George Lucas's house. Indy's being chased by Nazis as uh, he breaks through a barrier and plays joust with a flagpole, <laughs> puts it in the spokes of another bike, and they stop at a crossroads. He goes over the final challenge of the Grail in the book that they don't have right now. They head to the Lion's Den of Berlin. And I do find it funny that they go to the street sign. And this is kind of convenient that we're pointing right to where we need to go. Right, Matt? (laughs) Yeah, and this relatively unpaved road. They might as well say plot this way. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how on the nose, you know, this is. Uh, So... Yeah, but it is a pause to decide, and it's basically telling the audience which way the mil- the film's going to go right now. They head to the quote-unquote Lion's Den of Berlin to get the book, and his dad hits him for saying, Jesus Christ. He gives a speech how, about how if the Grail is captured by Nazis, a reign of terror will take over all of Europe. And we get some poignant talk about his mom, literally the first, and from what I recall, only time Indy's mom is even mentioned in the movies. Yeah. Spielberg keeping that separated family. Mm-hmm. We don't know if she died, divorced. We have no idea what happened. They say she died because he talks about an illness. Yeah, she died. She oh, died of cancer. Okay. We then get quite an amusing scene of the two Joneses going to the book burning of Berlin. <laughs> but first, Indy confronts Elsa for the book in a scene I'm sure fans of S&M love. As he says, all he has to do is squeeze, and she says all she has to do is scream. <laughs> I like seeing angry Indy, though. I mean, this should be, you know, surprise it's not Sean Connery. No, because if you love her, you do it with an open palm. Uh. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Indy gets the book and heads out before running into Hitler, who promptly signs the diary. (laughs) This is something where as a kid I laughed, and now as an adult, this whole burning Berlin scene just seems so unnecessarily Spielberg. Taika Waititi would look at this and say, man, that's a silly way to do some Nazis. It's just... I, I I don't know. The thing about this is that we heard Hitler's name in Raiders. He was just a presence on the overall act of that movie. Here, we're seeing Hitler in action, and it's not as poignant to me to see Hitler actually sign a fucking diary. We definitely didn't need to see him because hit, we know he exists. Yeah. Um, and I think the further these movies get into... You know, historical realism. Those are kind of my least favorite parts. They get on a flight to Germany as it takes off, and Indy says they made it. His dad does not share his sentiment, though, and that might be because both Connery and Ford did the scene without pants on. (laughs) (laughs) This fucking set was so fucking hot, they were like, we gotta sit for this scene all this entire time, and we're sweating like crazy. Let's just take our pants off. We get a scene of the Nazis scouring the flight for the Joneses, and in an amusing bit, Indy knocks out the Nazi and throws him out the window. As he looks at the other passengers and says, no ticket, 
and everyone digs around for a ticket. This is one of those scenes that made me roar with laughter as a child. I watch it now, I'm like, oh, that's kind of silly. Yeah, like this movie should be accompanied by a laugh track at certain points. Because <laughs> it just stops for a series of gags. Oh, yeah, it's... It, it's Okay, two things. One, when they get in here into, into the into the blimp or airship, however you want to do it, I like the uncomfortable father-son moment. You know, at the heart of this, there is a great father-son story being told, and God knows more than once I've had confrontations with my father, you know, where it's been like, okay, fine, let's have this conversation, and nothing comes out, you know? Yeah. So I, th- there's some beautiful realism to that. The slapstickiness of this other part, it goes with the movie that we've had. But, yeah, sometimes it feels a little too broad. I do laugh that, and I found this in, in trivia while I was going through this, that one of the one of the suitcases that they land on, to tie it into something we've done before, I guess if you zoom in on it, it says Grindelwald. Oh, shit. Yes, oh which God. is just a German last name. So the two Joneses, they talk about sharing adventures and women. As Indy says, the last time they shared a drink together, he had a milkshake. And there's some back and forth about how his dad was was not a real good father, although in his mind he thinks he was. And in a extremely harsh bit of dialogue, he tells him, you left just as you were getting interesting at 19. Oh, boy. That, that one was rough, man. They go over the final challenges once again as Indy notices that now the blimp is actually turning around. They get on a plane, and his dad says that, I didn't know you could fly a plane, to which Indy says, fly, yes, land, no, which is kind of poignant considering that later on Harrison Ford would land in a fucking golf course to save his life. <laughs> more than once, he is crashed Yeah, plane. They head out in one of the more amusing scenes of the movie, as Indy tells him, the fire at 11 o'clock, which his dad responds, what happens at 11 o'clock, which I think was one of Matt's favorite jokes, I think. Planes, yeah, trains, and automobiles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a hernia pop from laughing so hard. <laughs> when Henry finally does fire, he takes out their own tail, and <laughs> he just looks at Indy. He goes, I'm sorry, son. They got us. I'm sorry. I'm laughing really hard at this. They land at a barn as his dad says, nice landing. They take a car and are once again chased by another plane. They go into a tunnel and some cool sound effects are going on here as they're driving through. And we even get a shot of the pilot looking at them as he drives by the plane and it explodes. (laughs) That's quite an amusing shot. They're going through the tunnel. The plane gets its wings taken off by the sides of the tunnel. So this, this part with the cockpit is just going by the car. And the guy's looking at them as he's driving by like, oh, that's interesting. Look at those guys. Oh, I thought that was funny. This five minutes... You might as well call it Jaws 3 because it jumps the shark with just kind of how ridiculous <laughs> this gets here once they leave the airship. There's times where I'm, I'm smiling a little bit, but the the rear projection when they're in that biplane is so bad. I mean, it's it's original cut of Endor bad. Oh, boy. And as much as when I was a little kid, I was laughing at, you know, this plane running parallel to them in the tunnel. It's, <laughs> it's so silly, goofy. I mean, it, I'll take it back to Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo would be tilting his head like a confused dog. <laughs> I think this goes too far. I just, for the longest movie in up to this point, this is some of the stuff that really should have been snipped out, and it makes no sense how the topography and geography of this area works. Because we go from this mountainous region to suddenly where, 
you know, we got this cabin to we got this tunnel to we're about to be on a beach, and I have no idea how all of these go together. I want to take an axe to this whole, like, ten minutes. Because uh, the geography is not consistent. I don't find it funny. And I never feel like... This movie sort of has the, the problem I had with, like, Diamonds Are Forever as an example. It never really feels like Indiana Jones is in a whole lot of danger. Well, faster than you can say. They don't come any closer than that. A bomb falls and they crash right into a hole in the ground. Indy sees that he has no bullets as his dad gets a bunch of seagulls to take out the final plane. And then says that he finally remembered his Charlemagne. And I love the look on Indy's face as he's amazed at what his father has accomplished here. This is another thing where it made me laugh as a kid. And I like the way that Connery's at least given something here. It, But like Matt said, I could cut this entire sequence and I think it would be stronger for it. See, I'm having a good time here and I, I, I'm not wanting any of this cut. I'm <laughs> actually with all of this. The Nazis start trying to find allies as the Jones boys find Salah and Salah reveals that the Nazis have Marcus as well as the map. They're being trailed by a tank and as Indy finds their cavalry, his dad warns him to get down to which Indy responds, Dad, we're well out of range as a tank shell goes flying past them. <laughs> <laughs> and we even get a Wilhelm scream as a firefight breaks out, and Indy tells Sala that he needs horses, not camels. So the Nazis find Kazim, who once again warns of the Grail's power as Indy's father is captured. This symbol right here, this tattoo that we've seen over and over, and it's yeah. the seal and the symbol, that's the same one they have in, in Brandon Fraser's The Mummy, isn't it? Well, I don't this know. group I might as well be the Medjai. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's, for some reason, I kept looking at it i didn't look it up but i feel like that's exactly what they took so indy shows up with a horse and tells sala that he said no camels that's five camels can't you count <laughs> <laughs> we then get a pretty big tank chase here which spielberg storyboarded to a t you know since the first film spielberg hasn't really been storyboarding that much but here he storyboarded this, this entire tank chase probably the most he'd storyboarded since raiders he ended up saying that he had much more fun storyboarding it than filming it. We're seeing fights that take place at the end of the tank's gun, and Indy places a rock in another of their guns. Indy shoots at them and hops on the tank himself and fires a gun that goes through like six soldiers. He then punches one soldier who gets sucked under, sucked under the tank's wheels and fights another who tries moving his head on the wheels. This is all good stuff, but it's hard not to notice that during all of this, they really have nothing for Henry to do other than make terrible the pen is mightier than the sword jokes. The second movie in 1989 that used that same exact line. <laughs> what else used that line? Batman, Batman. 89. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. This scene's okay, but again, I don't think any of the action scenes are as good as what you saw in Raiders. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. Is this? It's that chase scene from Raiders. It's the one as they're going through the desert. We're going through the desert here. They've upped it to tanks, and it just doesn't feel as strong or kinetic. Um, if he storyboarded it, maybe and no knock on no knock on the beard, but maybe this is when you know second unit or specifically should have taken over. You know, other than when we got the actors. I remember. They have featurettes, you know, on TV about this chase scene around the time before this was coming out. A big deal about Harrison Ford doing his own stunts, you know, for a lot of this. It's fine, but it's it just doesn't hold up what we've seen before. And I can't stand Marcus and Henry just like cracking wise inside a tank while all this, you know, death and destruction is going on. It feels out of place. Meanwhile, Indy is hanging off the tank and is taking into, taken into rocks as he pulls himself up, and his dad quips, You call this archaeology? 
another line straight from the fucking trailers that was in all of them his dad gets stuck on the wheel and there's a huge rescue attempt on him sala shows up and indy looks up just in time for his hat to go flying and he goes down with the tank pretty good crash here and we get some moments of sensitivity as from henry as he muses over the fact that he didn't tell indy anything but indy he pulls himself up and walks over to them and for a split moment there's a moment of love as henry says i thought i lost you boy but then let's go and says well done before indy falls and his hat rolls right to his legs i like i like the way this scene ends i love this scene i like i like indiana jones looking over their shoulder i mean that yes that is I mean that's that's Jack Burton suddenly <laughs> kind of looking at whoof wow whoof it's just it, it it makes me laugh and then him falling at the end it's, mm-hmm. it's a tension breaker for a scene that didn't live up to you know what came before but it's a good ending to it as we're about to I mean you might as well have a star wipe to go and kick off this third act right here the tension didn't need to be broken for two reasons they were cracking wise in a life or death situation about two minutes ago and nobody thought. They were going to kill off Indiana Jones. No, but I think it's needed just for the moment within Henry where he's just like, oh, my God, he's gone and I didn't tell him anything. You know, I think it's more for Henry's character's sake than, say, a moment where we believe Indy's actually gone. But that beat is double played in the end. So to me, it feels nowhere near as effective here. They have reached the end of their journey as the Nazis and Indy both make their way into the catacombs. They see some poor sap get completely decapitated by the earliest set of CGI blades you'll ever see. Because, yeah, I forgot this movie was PG-13 up to this point. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, it's a different, definitely a different feeling film. And this next, is not the, next, the one in the series that needed the PG-13. For the next 20 minutes, this movie turns into Temple of Doom. Not really. Let's get into it. The Nazis take Salah, Indy, and his dad hostage. And Donovan says that Indy will get the grail or his dad will die as Donovan shoots him. Let, before we get there, okay. they they walk in to these Nazis already there, right, and already starting to go through this. They're looking over these boulders, like watching this go on, and somebody comes up behind them and captures them and takes them down there. This is exactly how they got captured in Temple of Doom. Like, <laughs> exactly how they got captured and taken down to Malaram. So now there's a ticking clock, and Indy better find the grail with its healing power before his dad dies he makes his way to where the blades are and makes it out using some odd stop drop and roll technique and a penitent man will pass nursery rhyme he then goes to the footsteps of the word of god of course in latin jehovah doesn't start with a j it starts with an i he gets through this and moves on to the leap of faith from a lion's head i'm not sure i like these trials i think they could be better it's amazing how quick this happens once we get here. Mm-hmm. Like, this is some rapid fire to get through it for the buildup of everything, for the diary. And it takes me longer to, to do this in the Uncharted video game with the same diary than it takes for this movie to get there. So I would have liked a little more of it. Parts of it look good. Parts of it don't. Yeah, those double blades look horrendous. Even when they get the practical ones later, they look fake. It's really really bad i like the jehovah steps you know it's kind of neat and i love the leap of faith i love the the optical illusion and what it is i like it less after india indiana jones does it and everybody else can do the same fucking thing i think that's yeah i think that's problematic when you're talking about faith and religion and the grail but i do 
really like that step that he's got to do, but I don't think it's played enough into... I think there's a part of this script where him and his father, because there's the blasphemy line earlier that got him slapped, I think there's more to his dad having this religious faith, Indiana not. And I think a lot of that is cut out for slapstick, but I do like the way that he gets there. There's a really lost part of the tether here where Indy gets across this platform after this big leap where he could have just gone down and never ever come up and after he gets across he just throws some sand on it but yet these two are able to get across it anyway so else can just walk across no big what what does it say about faith when you have a nazi and a nazi sympathizer who are able to cross as well (laughs) Uh, and yeah with all the build-up he's able to do these pretty easily uh they don't come across as difficult or as challenging as they should be, uh, which is part of my problem. Because from here on out, the movie feels like it's rushing to finish. Mm-hmm. So much so that the temple collapses on itself, telling them, all right, hurry up, we got to get out of here. <laughs> There's one detail, though, that I love. Henry is shot by a Walter PPK, which is Bond's gun. Oh, is that what that was? Nice, nice touch. Oh, oh, that's nice. I never caught that. Indy then gets to the holding place of the Grail, being guarded by the last brother, who can't even hold up a sword. They it are joined have been by one of the Monty Python actors. Yes. No, no. Oh, that would have that would have been perfect. <laughs> or well, you... he walks in, he picks up the Grail, he goes, "It's only a model." Well, he uh, Spielberg wanted Laurence Olivier for this. Yeah, he had just died this year. He was on his way to dying. He died about like a set of months right before this movie was even released. But he he tried getting Laurence Olivier. He's like, dude, I can't even get out of bed. I'm not going to fucking go there. They are joined by Donovan and Elsa. And the knight tells them to choose wisely, as a true grail will bring life. Any other will take it. Donovan makes the mistake of letting Elsa choose for him, because of course you let the woman do this. Well, you know, if you didn't, you're never going to hear the end of it. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's also, did she purposely give him the wrong one? Well, let's get to what happens here. So he gets some water and drinks from it, and the result isn't anything as visceral as we've seen in the past couple weeks, but a horrible Roger Corman-esque puppet that gets old and disintegrates with the Nazi symbol right by him. I have been very complimentary of this movie. Quite frankly, much more complimentary than I thought I would be. My previous viewings of this, I thought it was much lesser than what we've seen before. We'll get to our scores scores when we get to our scores, but I'm going to go ahead and say the end with the Nazis going up in flames in that first one and then the heart being ripped out and all that is all visceral, visceral stuff. This is fucking stupid. I hate this end effect. And and I know this is probably what got them the PG-13 rating because as Matt said, we haven't gotten much of the PG-13 realm here and it's really bad. As far as if she chose for him, fuck, I don't know. I think she's just going off her instincts here. She wants this power as much as anybody. And I don't think she gives a shit whether Indy or Donovan live through it. I think she wants to take this grail and take it for herself. Maybe it was her plan all along to have Indy be the one who chooses it because she knows that he knows it more than anybody. But I don't know. It's 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 interesting. We'd actually have to have some good Elsa motivation to know what she's That's true. for. You know, because we hmm. really don't. She's along for everybody else. Like, what does Elsa want other than a sleep it, yeah. the Jones boys? The effect... You know what? 25 years later, it doesn't hold up. However, I will take a practical effect any day of the week. There's no optical effect to it. Thank God they haven't gone through and changed this. I'm really surprised that if we can put walkie-talkies into the hands of FBI agents, I'm surprised that Spielberg hasn't redone this, but I will take a practical effect. It's crappy, but it's effective. You get what they're doing. You're playing the film backwards. 
I like the impetus behind it, but the result doesn't doesn't match what it should be. And I know I'm going to be eating my words when we get to next week. Yep. <laughs> Literally, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the absence of Chris Wallace or Rob Keen, mm. you know, those really top of the line yep. makeup artists and visual effects, practical effect work is sorely missed. Well, I will say that. I think this is... I was going to save this for my end wrap-up, but I mentioned at the end of Temple of Doom, the reason why I gave it a higher score than both of you is because I think we had two filmmakers going off their instinct and doing things that later they looked and they were like, oh my God, look how fucking dark this ended up being. But as audience members, we're like, oh my God, this is dangerous. This is awesome. This is cool to watch. Here, I think everything's calculated. Everything's like drawn up to a T. And I just don't think that the spontaneity that came with those movies that, that made those movies feel so dangerous is here. And I think that's part of the problem here too is that we're seeing this huge effect yet it's nothing that's been built up to be we're seeing it being calculated we're seeing oh no there's not going to be any blood there's not going to be any melting effects here it's just going to be a melted skeleton because we did that and we got in trouble for it this whole from here on out it feels overly storyboarded and i kind of wish they came up with something if not more graphic something that you've never seen before i mean it's it's a good idea it's just i don't think the time and care was put into this ending to make it as strong as the as any of the other ones that came before it sadly i think the journey was more important than the end destination indy is told that elsa chose poorly as he now gets to pick the cup and of course he ends up choosing wisely i do like that there's a thought put into this by spielberg by everybody else that the cup of a carpenter the cup of what they would use to catch Jesus' blood would not be this gold and jewel-laden yeah. goblet. You know, there mm-hmm. there is a thought in that. And I say, I do think he always has some nuances to what's going on historical-wise. And, I mean, that had to be explained to me as a kid, and I respected that. And I think there's thought put into what that final cup looks like. And I think that's kind of the template now for what we see in media when we see the cup of Christ. And he takes the cup to his dad, and I guess he just has to pour the water on his wounds to make him feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Alka-Seltzer. Yeah, that's what I thought of. Sala tells the other troops to please drop their guns. (laughs) I love when he goes, drop your guns, please. I never caught that before. As Elsa gets her hands on the grail, and of course, once again, the plan goes awry as she crosses the seal like the knight warned them not to do. The grail falls to the point where she can't reach it, and as she does, Indy's trying to pull her up, but she's more for reaching for the grail, and she ends up falling to the depths below. Worst grail ever. Like, you can have everlasting life, but you can only have it here. Yeah. Don't cross the seal. Don't cross the streams. So I'm going to make a joke that only Adam is going to understand on this podcast. I find it very funny that a character named Elsa couldn't let it go. (laughs) Oh, I got that. Yeah, it's a Frozen reference. Come on, you didn't think I'd know that? Indy finds himself in the same position of reaching the grail, and he is just within reach, but it is when his dad finally calls him Indiana that he listens. And boys... I gotta say, man, it shouldn't have this effect on me. It has never had this effect on me since I've been watching this movie and I've seen this going. It's in the double digits at this point. This gave me tears when he did this. I had to pause the movie at this point. 
I think that's just the years going on. I think that's just me putting distance between my father and me. And I, I got tears at this. I, I really, really gave into the scene. I didn't have tears, but I felt for the scene quite a bit. The score does a good job. Sean Connery does a, you know, does a good job of the delivery. Base acting is, is really well done. I don't know if I like Indiana acting like Elsa, but seeing that, I almost wish that they would have a line being like, I'm doing it for you, Dad, because the grail was his dad's grail, literally. Mm. But I love that Indiana. Let it go. You know, he's respecting who Indiana is by calling him that name, and it is a touching father-son moment. So as much as a tear didn't shed, it did catch me. This works about as well as it could have, so I won't condemn it. They run out without the grail as the knight bids them farewell. Henry says Elsa never believed in the grail, but he himself found illumination. We get an amusing final bit of Sala laughing at the fact that Indy was named after the dog. And Marcus takes off in the wrong direction, and they all ride towards the sunset in their final adventure as credits roll on Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. I, I don't think Sala's presence is needed, but I like his reaction to finding out he was named after the dog. <laughs> yes, I do too. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a funny note to end the movie on, but I didn't need Brody almost getting knocked off his horse. Going in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love John Reese davies delivery of the, you would named after the door. Like, he just <laughs> Yeah, you and I have actually said that line a lot to each other over the <laughs> yes, years, actually. It's, it's a great delivery. I like them deciding that they're going to ride off into the sunset together. And hey, look, you always have the horizon in the top or bottom third of the frame. Fablemans, anybody? <laughs> Come on. Okay, that one was for yes. Garrett. <laughs> I got it. I got it. I still haven't seen it. Really? I haven't either. I just know how it ends. Thanks, Kevin Smith, for spoiling the movie. <laughs> He's good at that. Uh, at this time, it was clear this was it. This is a ending that is so on the nose, but it's so perfect that they are going to ride off into the sunset together. I love them riding off in the sunset. And Marcus notwithstanding, because I've actually been with Marcus this time. I know Matt's been kind of hard on this, but I found his kind of bit of offbeat humor amusing. Him writing off like this, though, is just ridiculous. I, I'm with him on that. But other than that, I think them riding off in the sunset is a beautiful way to end this movie. By the way, it's also shot by Douglas Slocum, um, mm-hmm. who's worked with them in the past. And this is this is gorgeous shot, gorgeous use of the sun here, and gorgeous way of showing these people like we'd never see them again. You know, this was this was going to be it. And I think it's a perfect way to end things here. So that does it for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, boys. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give this movie? Adam, you go ahead and go, sir. This is a film that when I saw it as a kid, it was almost nothing more anticipated, you know, growing up. It, it was huge. It was huge in my house. We were going to see it as a family. It was big, and the buildup for it was big. I think this film is a continuation and correction to part of the issues that Lucas and Spielberg had with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. But I think if you look at each of these three films, look at them as a trilogy, you have a straight serial adventure. And then you have a horror adventure. And this one is a comedic adventure. It's amazing how much this feels like I'm watching um, Nicolas Cage go and search for the Declaration of Independence. Because this has that much broad comedy. And it doesn't always work. On that, it's a, it's a departure where the first one was such a solid, as a, you know, we gave it tens across the board, which had not been done by the three of us before. So for this one to really take that 
com- comedic slapsticky departure. Not just comedic, but just slapsticky. Um, it lessens it a bit. However, Sean Connery is a great introduction. He's a wonderful Henry Jones Sr. Elsa, uh, she's fine. I could have let her go as well. Just doesn't hold up to the strong villain she could have been. I'm glad to see Sala back. Donovan is forgettable. The opening with River Phoenix is good. Uh, it's amazing. I felt like that was so much longer than it was, but that's really like 10 minutes in and out. This film, it, you know, kind of like the character that Indy models himself after at the beginning. That character's name is just Fedora. Like, that's all that character is. The guy that Indy gets all of his stuff. His name is Fedora. Much like this film is a take on what Indiana Jones was. It feels lesser. It feels like it's colored. A coloring book version of Indiana Jones as opposed to just the artistic vision that we had. It went the last two films. Like, I wasn't huge on Temple of Doom, but I understood what they were doing. I respected their take on it. This one feels the most commercial, but it feels designed to be the most commercial. I like it. I like it a lot. It could be great, but as it is, it's good. It's very good. I like it more than Temple of Doom. I rewatch it more than Temple of Doom, but it is no Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm going to give this a good seven and a half. Seven and a half from Adam Bunch. Matt, you've been kind of harsh on this movie. What's your final score for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, sir? I have been, but that's also relative to how much I love Raiders and think that is just the, the cream of the crop. What disappoints me the most is that I'm the person who did the fewest Sean Connery impersonations on this podcast. That is <laughs> the most shocking part of this discussion. You know, my analogy for this movie is it feels like they took three different jigsaw puzzles and put them together. Because the elements that come from each individual puzzle, I think, work really well. But looking at this as a full motion picture, it does feel a little bit fragmented for me. There's parts I really like, but there's some parts that just really get on my nerves. But there's more here that I think is of quality than the previous movie. And I will give it a higher score than I gave Temple of Doom, but ultimately, to me, there is still Raiders of the Lost Ark and a canyon between the sequels. I think Connery's addition helps provide a new perspective But at the same time, I don't think it's fully realized until he gets shot, which is kind of unfortunate. Harrison Ford is still as charming as he's ever been, but one of the things that hurts this movie in comparison to Raiders is twofold. I don't think the action scenes are as memorable, and I think the villains are underwritten and not all that imposing. But having said that, it's still fun. I got through this movie without any desire to turn it off or or pause it, but I think if this was ironed out, they could have had something great. But I'll still give it the moniker of good, and I'll land on a soft 7 on 10 for Last Crusade. Wow. Higher than I was expecting from Matt. My main criticism of this, I've already gotten out of the way. I think before we had two spontaneous filmmakers at the top of their game creating and doing some really fun stuff with some really cool toys, to quote the Joker movie from that same summer. With this film, they had an obligation to each other as friends to kind of complete this trilogy. 
and they came together and they decided on a story and they went with more of a slapstick feel to this as opposed to the visceral feel of the previous two films. The adventure's still there. The fun is still there. I think this is, a out of the three, this is, well, one's my number one favorite movie of all time. This is the second most fun of this trilogy, the original trilogy. I think we're seeing Harrison Ford and Sean Connery have a blast together and I think it's a real shame that we didn't see Connery reprise this role. This is the last time we'd see him in this series in physical form i think this is the least best adventure action scenes we've had but it's still fun you know we're, we're seeing people on tanks get almost get sucked under the wheels and there's still some danger to be had here despite what matt said earlier but the stuff on the bike and all that this it's just a fun overall picture but that lack of spontaneity does kind of take it down a notch for me that being said the father son stuff it shouldn't and as I said earlier, in years past, it didn't. But man, it really, really worked me, this movie, to lead, lead, lead to that crescendo at the end. Every single son fights for that respect from their father as an adult, just to kind of show that they've made it. And once Indy gets that, it's kind of second fiddle to the grail, which is why he leaves the grail behind. And I think that's a wonderful way to uh, cap off the story and it's a nice arc for indy to have in this film more so than the half-assed one he had last week so all that being said this is much more fun than i was expecting to have when revisiting this i used to think this movie was the least of the trilogy i used to think this is the least fun of the trilogy watching it now i had much better time this is a solid eight out of ten for me it is not a ten and it's certainly not the lows of temple of doom although i was more high on that than both of you and i do think that this is a wonderful way if you want to just kind of skip the darkness of temple of doom and just forget about the fact that indy had a sidekick <laughs> little asian boy to go on his adventures put this in I, I think you'll have a better time with this one and it's a nice cap off to raiders but this was not the cap off this ended up being well it was the final film for a while and after this adam i'm going to go ahead and ask you sir they have started streaming this on the disney network disney plus they have started streaming young indian jones chronicles now this was a series i used to watch every single friday i would sit and i would watch this series it was appointment television for me though it got to the point where this kind of felt educational lucas was a producer on this Uh, one of the writers of this kind of helped with that it was interesting at first because we get to see a little bit of what we got in the beginning stages of this film as far as indy being a child and whatnot harrison ford did make a couple appearances but i don't know did you watch young indy jones chronicles were you a fan of that i have never watched it and not really not for any ill will not for any reason once we get through these i'm going to watch them on my disney plus but i've just never watched indiana jones or young indy chronicles I want to watch it. Um, I think Alex may enjoy watching it with me, my son. But I just, I never did. No good reason. I just never did. Yeah. Like I said, it was appointment television for me. Although it got to the point where I kind of got bored of it. Like it just, it kind of had more of an educational feel to it. It didn't have like a, like a real big Saturday matinee feel like these films did. It was, it was different and it, it felt like he was plugging this character in to kind of educate people as opposed to entertain them. Which to me Boudreaux, is I'm what a, it should be go, though. Like that yeah. is what I would want maybe now as an older is an older man like i want those fun educational type of adventures like i think there's something good there maybe as a kid you know maybe that's what you felt just as a kid it was like eh, i gotta go to school i don't want school mm-hmm. at home 
Yeah, and I've and I've actually been going through it just this last couple of weeks. I've I've gone through the first half of that season. Salah has a couple appearances in it. I know they asked River Phoenix to do this, but River Phoenix was not going to do television again. He was straight in films at, at this point. They got Sean Patrick Flannery, who we come to know in Boondock Saints later on. I think he's fine in this. I, I I think it's a it's an interesting show that just shows his character in a different light. So this was not the end of the film series because. About 19 years later, we got Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. A notorious movie, a movie that people have lots of opinions on. People either love it, they hate it. There is nothing in between with this movie. Adam, what are you uh, expecting when we go to Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull next week? I think we've all been pretty nice to each other up till this point going through the series, and I think that may end next week. <laughs> I just got a feeling that there are going to be some opinions between the three of us. I think this is going to be, like, I think this might be the most firework-inducing until we get to The Last Jedi. I think that's how I think next week is going to go. Wow. Goudreau? The Last Jedi is an appropriate comparison because when I walked out of the theater for both of those movies, I had no idea I was walking into the equivalent of World War Three on the internet. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, I was 15, 14, 15 when I saw it. And to be honest, I was caught up in the euphoria of a new Indiana Jones movie, especially one released in my lifetime. And, I, and as I said, I remember walking out of that theater and just having no idea that this movie was going to be the brunt of so much backlash and quote-unquote controversy. Yeah, it was not what I expected, both literally and in the response. Yeah, all you have to do is say nuke the fridge, and people know what you're talking about. <laughs> Definitely things to talk about next week. Coming into this, it's been a while since I've revisited this film. I did this series a number of years ago over at the other place. I kind of think I know what to expect, but I, I'm not sure. There's just, there's just this feeling of this being Spielberg's last and Lucas's last go at this character that is really kind of working on me. And we've gone through Star Wars. We've gone through Indy. This has been a really big year for us as far as these big temple franchises that have really gotten blockbusters to where they are today, or at least they were for a while there. So I have no idea what I'm going to feel when we're, when we're done next week. But it's ex I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. And Adam, I think you're right. I think there might be some fights next week. I do remember having feelings about this that were much different than what was being said about it. So... That's for next week. Boys, we are getting ever so closer to the brand new release, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I've seen blurbs about it. I have kept as far away from word of mouth as possible. Matt, my big fear, well, I want to leave my big fear for next week. Remind me next week of what my big fear of the end of this uh, series is going to be. But until next week, when we talk about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, we podcast poorly. Thank you, gentlemen. Again, Jones, what was briefly yours is now mine. What a fitting end to your life's pursuits. You're about to become a permanent addition to this archaeological find. Who knows? In a thousand years, even you may be worth something. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Well, made it. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Careful, you might get exactly what you wish for.
wonder sometimes, monsieur, if you have that clearly in mind. And if you like this podcast, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more. I should say you look rather lost, but then I cannot imagine where in the world the three of you would look at home. There's nothing you have that I could possibly want. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Well, I thought archaeologists were always funny little men searching for their mommies. Mommies. and a retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. There may be hundreds of skulls at Akator. Whoever finds them will control the greatest natural force the world has ever known. Edited by Garrett. Voiceovers by Adam. You're my best friend. Give me your hat. Why? Because I'm going to puke in it. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Indy! Henry! Follow me! I know the way! Ha! Got lost in his own museum, huh? Uh-huh. Nice. Um, God damn it, get off the computer. Okay, fine. Freaking kitten. I do wish they cast they cast a different actress. I, I will say that. Spielberg I, had a vision. I wish, Go ahead. I wish they had just... Unlike his class earlier, X indeed marks the spot here. Hold on a second, guys. Right. I gotta kick the cat off the desk. Yeah, so does Indy. Yeah, right. Shave the pushing pussy. She mentions that uh, uh, Indy mentions that his because she's like, you, "I'm sorry, let me start over." 
Uh, Indy mentions that Dad wasn't giddy even when he was a schoolboy. Uh, and the Donovan reveal in this scene is also not a surprise. Might as well have had him take off a hood and go, "It's me, Austin." Like, like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting to the Donovan. <laughs> oh, you said the Donovan reveal. I thought you meant the Marcus reveal. Yeah, that was that oh, yeah, was a we'll, little. We got that too. This is where. Yeah, we're getting that here in a little Brody bit. Brody got kidnapped and replaced by more. <laughs> Indy confronts Elsa for the book in a scene I'm sure fans of S&M love, as he says all he has to do is squeeze, and she says all she has to do is scream. Wow, that line didn't hit, huh? <laughs> I thought for sure that line was going to hit. I guess not. But I've just never watched Indiana Jones or Young Indy Chronicles. I, I don't know why. I know it's where the first entire CG character was created, so the... The, it's it's legacy and what it did for for effects work and filmmaking is pretty damn important. I think you're thinking of Young Sherlock Holmes. I am thinking of Young Sherlock Holmes. You're right. You know what? I got those two mixed up big <laughs> for good reason. I think that makes perfect sense. 